only with gravitas that we can return awe to education. And I think that that's important to think about our education, right? If we are forming a child, then that child is is looking at this sort of process or skills or content, whatever you want to say, that's being given to him, that's being put on him or her, and should feel a sense of awe. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. Today we're talking about an article called Gravitas, The Lost Art of Taking School Seriously. If you enjoy these conversations, you know what you should do? You should like and subscribe to this video. That would make me feel very good inside. Huh. That's important because we try to make Shane feel good as much as we can. But before we get into this article, I did have a question for you guys. What have you been reading recently? Anything different? I just finally finished The Black Swan by Raphael Sabatini. Yeah. And it ends with this twist at the end that I was, I was, I was home by myself and I said out loud to nobody, oh my gosh, um, I could not believe the great greatness of this twist. And it was already great going in. I could have done with it and it would have been great, but it was just, it just touched, it just, just topped it off for me. Wow. I just, it's a, I love Sabatini. Somebody has called him, what is it? The modern Alexander Dumas. Wow. I think if you're comparing him to the Three Musketeers, <laughs> that would probably be correct. If you're comparing it to the Count of Monte Cristo, that would be incorrect. And interestingly enough, I am now in the fourth chapter of the Three Musketeers. That's what oh, I'm reading okay. right now. Uh, so. Are you reading the Three Musketeers? I am. Yeah. Don't, don't blame me, Tanya. <laughs> don't, don't blame me. It's okay so far. It's nothing. I'm, oh, see, see, I'm going almost, to read it. I'm going to read you it. You should. You should. I, uh, I'm most of the way through Captain Blood. By Sabatini. Sabatini. Yeah. Sabatini is oh, the theme. At, wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't get and on that bandwagon. Think? Did you, Shane? Oh, it was phenomenal. No, I was, I was yeah. not. I, it's interesting because it's like the the question of the ethical pirate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? And, uh, is um, what Captain Blood is. How do you write a pirate story where the lead character, who is himself a pirate, is good? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, Sabatini it's that Robin off. Hood theme. Yeah, so if of, you've yeah. read Robin Hood in the fifth grade mm-hmm. or sixth grade... Then you'll be ready for Sabatini. Do you know of a curriculum that might enable you to do yeah, that well? That's a good I question. I do. I've got a really good curriculum in mind. Yeah. Well, I I'm reading some book that called Cold Comfort Farm that I don't even know why I bought this book. I think because the introduction was by Lynn Truss, who did the Eat Shoots and Leaves book. Oh. I've never heard of this author, can't remember her name, but it is a strange book. And I still, but you know, it's It's one of those books where you get, yes, where you get halfway through and you think, I've got to see where this is going. Mm. But I just, I finished the Oxford Inklings and I started from Plato to Christ by Marcos, Mm -hmm. which I'm really liking it. So the topic of our conversation today is an article that Cheryl Lowe wrote, and the article is called Gravitas. Subtitle, The Lost Art of Taking School Seriously. So, Paul, I want to kick it to you first. Will you just kind of give a summary a little bit of the gist of the article and why you think that this is an article that's worth kind of talking about and spending some time thinking through her argument with? And I think the just the article briefly is making the point that children need to perceive school as something rigorous, as work, as, as an endeavor and she particularly focuses on kindergarten, first and second grades being uh, years in which in a five-day program, students are taught in kindergarten that school is eh, a little bit of work, but it's also a lot of play. 
and how we set children up for viewing school as more as play than as work or, or as a challenge, as an endeavor and kind of what we can do to address the way that, um, the, the, the perception we feed these children from the very beginning of what school ought to be. Do you think it's fair to say the thesis of this article is that school is serious work? It's not play. That's a fair thesis. Yes. Tanya, what do you think about that thesis? Do you think it's right? Do you think it's important that we say that? I do. And I think her main point about the primary school is that it also is serious work and that we underestimate the importance of the primary school. And we she says in here, you know, that she told her teachers all the time that they were doing the most important work of the school in those grades where they teach them to read, to write, and to do basic math. That those are the, without those, you can't go any further. I mean, what are you going to do in education if you can't read? So we, you know, those teachers have a huge responsibility and we do depend on them to get this done. And that they, this little story that she tells in here about the first grade teacher who kindergarten came into her school and she said it ruined first grade because kindergarten was a time for play and so students weren't taking first grade seriously. At that point, that was one of those moments, I think, when Cheryl decided that kindergarten was going to have to be serious. Mm. Though she does make the point, it's two days a week. And she told me when I put my second grader in with a bunch of third graders in three hours of Latin a day and three hours of classical studies in her little cottage school. And I said, well, it's a really long day for him. And, and she said, it's just one day a week. He'll be fine. And I think that's the way she felt about kindergarten. Yeah. Two days a week, they can, they can learn to read and write and do math. And it's, you know, and it's serious and it sets them up then for first grade. So I think this article really is about primary school and setting that foundation. And if we're serious about primary school, then we're certainly going to be serious about the rest of it. But that primary school isn't always serious. You know, you've got all these play centers and we, I mean, we just don't have anything like that. But it is two days a week. They have three days at home they can play. Right. Martin, she starts the article talking about stages and she kind of gets into this primary piece that Tony was talking about by saying that we need to come up with a name for a new stage. Um, Can you explain a little bit of what she was thinking about and wrestling with as she was deciding to call the kindergarten through second, the primary stage, and then how she viewed the other stages? Yeah, well, she was, she was talking about uh, Dorothy Sayers' three stages of learning, which, which I've, I've discussed in uh, the classical teacher before, which is a, a useful uh, taxonomy of learning. And so she's basically, basically saying Sayers talks about three stages, uh, the grammar stage, the uh, logic stage, and the rhetoric stage. But there's no term for these early years bef- before you start actually maybe learning grammar. Because I think even Sayers mentions in the Lost Tools that she conceives of grammar starting at ninth grade mm-hmm. of the grammar stage. Yeah. yeah, sure. We'll always say uh, a grammar is not a grammar stage uh, subject. <laughs> but um, but I think that, so so you got this, these kindergarten through second grade and the tendency, and, and Cheryl was always pushing back against progressivism because it's so dominant in uh, pedagogy in the modern world. And so she was basically saying, because the assumption is, it's a romanticist assumption, is that children enjoy play, but they don't enjoy work. 
And I think what, what Cheryl was trying to do was to make children see that work is also enjoyable. It's not just fun. And if all you do is fun, the, the child becomes inured to that and they associate going to school with fun. And so when the work comes along, it's hard to shift gears into that. And, and so you, you want to be careful about training them to think that school is about play and then having in third grade or whatever, having to do work now, that's, that's going to be a hard shift to make. So I think that's, that's really what she was talking about. Um, but this, 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 this progressivist paradigm was something she was always pushing back against. And I think this is her statement of, of, um, the reason for pushing back against it in K through two. And what a statement she makes. I mean, the wording of this, she was just, she did not mince words, did she? Mm-mm. When she talks about the, so it's not that she, like for the preschooler, exploration through discovery, um, through play mm-hmm. and discovery, that's fine. But when she got to kindergarten, she said that's when it had to stop that exploration, discovery, learning that um, has become a very progressive term. And then she says, the progressive educator tries to convince the unsuspecting parent that only through continuing with these methods can the joy of learning be maintained permanently in the education process. This is the essence of progressive education and is the single most destructive influence in education today. It has infected the very air we breathe, and there are few even among classical educators who are immune to it. So we have to be careful, too. And I think, I think that her way of solving this problem was a stroke of genius, really, because uh, can a first grader, for example, work all day, every day of the week? No. Right. <laughs> so she collapsed back the time that you spend on those activities so that all, all you, you, you only use that time for work and it's just two or three days. It, you, 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 right. And I think that that was a great way to solve the problem. Because and our kids are sitting at their desks mm-hmm. for a lot of the day, the, our primary students, but they're, they are also joyful classrooms mm-hmm. and the work that they are being asked to do is age appropriate work. And it does come with games and bees and exercises and you know, all the other things that they need in order to be able to do the work. Their math is very, you know, using whiteboards and actively participating with the teacher who's engaged in the front of the classroom. And then they have seat work where they sit for 15 minutes and work independently with quiet classical music playing. And it's a peaceful time, but we're, they're not just sitting at their desks and working with a pencil in their hands all day long. Mm-hmm. So you do have to be careful about that. We're not asking them to do the work of a high school student, but we are asking them to do quite a bit of academic work. Marty, you mentioned kind of her deciding to go to the two-day kindergarten schedule, which is what we have here at HLS. And in the article, I like the way that she discussed it. She, it was almost like we kind of got into her mind when she was making that decision. And she's just like, I would have eliminated kindergarten if I could have gotten the, <laughs> gotten the buy-in. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you all, because you were probably around when she was at least tossing these suggestions around. What were those conversations like? Do you think she seriously would have eliminated kindergarten or is that kind of just in retrospect? 
Oh, I think maybe in her ideal world, she would have. Yes, because as long as it was what kindergarten was, which was a time of play, it was like just another year of preschool. Hmm. But child's um, garden, kindergarten now, we depend on for students to come out of our kindergarten reading so that we can continue to make so that by third grade, they are fluent readers because they've been reading for three years. So, so it does, she did recognize the importance of it. And the fact that five-year-olds are generally ready for that level of work. But I think an important additional point to make is that her point about learning not having, you know, you don't have to entertain in a classroom. Learning doesn't have to be fun. And I, I feel like we've beaten this horse to death because classical education is rigorous. It is academic. And, but our classrooms are joyful. And our the joy, she would always say, is in knowing the answer. Mm. So, yeah, we're, we are getting a lot done. But our students, and our students are working hard, but it's kind of like a trick, too. They don't really know how hard they're working. They don't know that they're working harder than other students. We're not asking them to do anything that they can't do. Right. Well, and I, I think she's also pushing back against the assumption behind so much of progressivism that this that this intellectual engagement is not enjoyable when in fact it is in fact one of the things you want to train children to understand by giving them really good material and and in reading to them really good books and all this stuff is that is that intellectual work is enjoyable it may not be fun in the in the game sense of the word but there is something enriching about it and, and that you can appreciate and that you you learn you know, we all know now, but kids have to be trained uh, in in the right attitude toward this. And I think that that was part of her uh, yeah. theme well, here. And I remember uh, finding in the the her Latin binder, the compilation of all of her thoughts on Latin after she passed away, where she had written that she, she wanted the goal for a senior at Highlands was a begrudging affection. For Latin. <laughs> and that, I mean, that has stuck with me because she realized it was going to be hard, mm. right? And there might be a begrudging aspect to, we have to do this again and again and again. We do this from second grade through through 12th grade, but that because they've accomplished something, mm. they have an affection for it, right? Mm. And that there is, through that hard work, we take pride in that. And that pride is is something that we that that makes us happy. It makes us joyful that we've been able to accomplish something difficult. And you get you. Get, it's the same kind of feeling you get with a with a coach who's really hard on you. Uh, uh, I, I know this from being involved in in sports that that the the players learn to love the coach because precisely because he has really pushed them. And I think that there's something of, I mean, and Cheryl, one of the other things Cheryl's always saying is that if, if we used n nobody, no sports team, no athletics program would ever tolerate using this progressivist methodology <laughs> on a sports team because you'd lose, mm. you know, I think that sports actually provides a good uh, analogy here. Martin, you talked a little bit about the progressivist kind of agenda and I, I underlined uh, the word artificial in one of the paragraphs here where she talks about a student having the ability to acquire an artificial abstract tools of human learning. 
And it reminds me of an article by Edie Hirsch that we ran at one point, the mm-hmm. classical teacher, um, where he kind of traces back all of the progressive agenda back to romanticism and says the opposite of that is actually a, g- a good artificial learning. That is the system of phonics and the system of, of um, math. These are not innate things. They are abstract or they are artificial constructs that we use to help students to learn. And those artificiality has been demonized. Yeah. Do you think she was conscious of that? Oh yeah, I think very much so. Um, and I think, you know, because one of the, one of the fundamental assumptions of progressivism is don't ever ask the student to do anything he or she does not want to do. I mean, ultimately that's what they would like. If They don't actually practice that. That's what they would really like to practice. And when you are going to do Latin forms or, or, or phonics or, uh, or uh, arithmetic um, calculations, you have to make them do it. You have to make them do something that they don't at that time want to do. And the progressive does not want to do that. And there comes a point at which, un- unless you force the issue, they're not going to do it. And are they going to be better off in the long run that way? I don't think so. So maybe to take the devil's advocate, is there anything good about the romanticist impulse? No. (laughs) (laughs) You don't think that Wendell Berry, who we discussed extensively in Fidelity, has a a sense of the romanticist uh, impulse in that he, he loves the the beauty of nature and the, the natural world and the way that God designed it. I don't think that's really what romanticism is. I mean, romanticism really, um, is the idea that that you should uh, you should try to express yourself as you are and impose that on all aspects of your life? Well, you know that that usually does not end well, um, and and I think that you have to understand that there are there are realities in this world. There's human nature. There there are are things about the physical world that you can't uh, deny and you can't not acknowledge. And if you, if, if you don't learn to do those things, then you're going to have a hard road to hoe in life. And yeah. I think Wendell Berry would agree with that. <laughs> so Paul, coming back around to you, we, Tanya mentioned that we do have games and such in our, in our education. What, what's the difference between the fun of like a Latin vocabulary drill game versus the fun that she is warning us not to saturate our education with? If you go watch any of these games played at in the classrooms at Highlands, they are they are quick, they are organized, and they are always driven towards a defined educational purpose, right? So if you're doing, I think they call it gladiator, where the two kids they get a vocabulary word and one of the kids has to say it, it's, they're trying to say it as fast as they can to beat the other the other student. You know, what are they doing? They're going over their vocabulary, but also the the amount of time they're spending is as minimal as possible, right? Or, or rather, maybe they have a set amount of time they're going to spend on the game, but they're going to get through as many vocabulary words as they can get through. And or, it's, or math facts or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Any subject. And and sometimes we're hitting two birds with one stone where it's. It, I, what, I remember watching the third graders where instead of just doing flashcards where the kids are sitting at the desk, it felt like a game to them because the teacher was standing up front and one child would come up and, and I guess maybe they were doing a gladiator side where they have two kids, but then the teacher had had them where they had to circle all the way around the room to come back to the back of the line. So they were also getting 
physical motion in to help keep them focused, right? And so it, it as as much as it felt like a game, it was really a drill, and they put it together with with physical motion so that the child wasn't bouncing off the walls. Yeah, I mean, uh, order. You said that word, order, structure. This is extremely important for a child. You know, you're not doing them any favors when you just leave them be and they they don't. There's no order or structure to them. Any parent really knows this. And well, so and kids themselves know it. You, they go say, mm-hmm. we're going to go play a game. If they have to come up with the game, they spend hours deciding what they're going to do. And it's no fun. Whereas if they're like, let's go play Red <laughs> Rover, boom. It's We all know the rules of the game and we're right. going to go do that. Um, my Memorial College class, which I'm uh, going to uh, promo right now, uh, is uh, wow. or, uh, it's on, on pedagogy, on classical pedagogy, uh, which, which I teach at Memorial College in the summer, um, is called Order and Inspiration. And I, I, I came up with that title because... I wanted to underscore the fact that order is not contradictory to inspiration. That order can, you know, an orderly classroom can be inspiring for kids. Um, and so, uh, so I, I think that's a really important thing because I think that's another progressivist assumption is that there's something inconsistent between order and inspiration. And there are students who really need the order. You know, who mm-hmm. get in a chaotic classroom are not able to learn. Mm-hmm. And so order works for every student. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, these classrooms that they have in, in, you know, a lot of progressive schools where they have learning centers in different parts of the room, that results in chaos. And that, you know, again, the smart kids are going to get it anyway, uh, but, the, but the kids who may not, uh, have had the same experience at home or don't have the same innate intelligence, they're, they're going to have an awful hard time if you, if you just uh, uh, have chaos as their environment in school. It's not going to work. And I think the same would be true at home for the homeschooler, even though mm-hmm. it's not a classroom situation. I still think they need order and they need to know, you know, that school is serious. This is the time that we're in school. And it just needs to be a different set of rules from playtime. So I think this applies not just to the kindergarten classroom or the first grade classroom, but but even at home, I think it applies to the homeschool or something. You know, school is serious. It's your job now. You, you know, one parent goes off to work. This is your work. And I think there are things that you can do. I feel like I didn't do a great job of that. Um, I should have at least made my children dress <laughs> <laughs> to do their schoolwork. But we did sit at the table and they did know, you know, that this was the priority and they weren't going to do anything else. It's not that I didn't give them breaks, but we weren't. School was the priority and we did start early every morning in pajamas. <laughs> I was dressed, <laughs> but when you <laughs> when correct. you don't do that, you 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 basically force a decision upon the the child of whether to do it or not. And and among that's just confusing. If you have a time in in home homeschooling, this is even more important. You when when school is on, it's on. That's what you're doing. The child doesn't have to make any decisions. That's they just right. do what they're supposed to do. And then when it's off, it's off. You could do whatever you want. And you really need to delineate that really clearly. I think uh, it, it helps children to do that. Well, it's, and I was going to say back to games, right? Like 
I was furious when I found out that my mother never let a game in the house that wasn't educational. <laughs> right. But what she was doing, I mean, but take the, the, for example, the game Scrabble, like she loved that for vocabulary building, right. And spelling, but in a, in a home, like what we're going to play after dinner, that's phenomenal. Right. But in a classroom setting, right. Or what we're going to do in our homeschool, we, we might come up with some sort of drill that's done in some sort of engaging way that's going to hammer that more quickly. Right. Right. And so you have kind of different kinds of engagement or games that can be played that are going to, that both are enriching. But when we're talking about a, like a classroom setting, this gravitas we're talking about timeliness, like the way how, what we're going to spend on this, I, I think is a huge consideration. Yeah. So what in land the plane um, on this idea that she um, mentions is actually the paragraph that you read earlier. And then she talks about the progressivist agenda being the air we breathe. And I think that for a lot of people, that's the most difficult part of it is that if it's the air you breathe, you don't know how to identify it. What would be words of advice you have to parents of homeschooling students who are homeschooling their kids, teachers, educators, people generally interested in the movement of classical education? What are ways that we can begin to identify how the progressivist agenda has kind of started to take the steal the gravitas from our schools and cause us to take it less seriously? Well, you know, I, th- I think chaos will increase unless it is actively opposed. <laughs> and so I know that one of the things that we've always had to do in school is just to make sure that we don't lapse. It's very easy to lapse into this, this easy progressivism. You know, Cheryl, Cheryl always said that the, the very uh, symbol of progressivism was a, a, a teacher sitting down on the floor with the students. This was the very image of it. And she, she had clippings from the newspapers when they were, you know, doing this big reform act here, which was really pushing this progressivism. It was always a teacher sitting on the floor <laughs> with these students. And, uh, and that's, that's an easy thing to do. It's, it's a fun thing to do. Right. But, but the question is, how much, how much are you actually benefiting them? And you, you really aren't. And so... I, I think that's that's one way. There's certain certain sort of signs, you know, the the learning centers in the classroom, the sitting down with the kids, the teacher sitting down with the kids. There's 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 various things you start to notice after you've been around it for a while. Well, that you just tip you off. You just have to. Teacher directed is important. Mm-hmm. The teacher in charge teaching all day. It's exhausting, but it has to be. It's not a child-centered classroom. If you have a child-centered classroom, I think you know it because Mm -hmm. you are going to have some chaos reigning. And just trusting that, that you do know best and that children don't have to be happy all the time. They don't have to get their way. And that in the long run, you're doing them a favor by having a teacher-directed classroom and knowing that the activities that you're doing as Paul's mother um, incorporated into her homeschool, that those activities are purposeful. What is the, I mean, think about it. What is the purpose of a game where you see how many Latin flashcards a student can do in 30 seconds? What is the purpose of that? to master the vocabulary. It has a purpose. So just knowing that you're filling your time with those things, I think will prevent as long as that's happening. Well, the curricular signs are a lack of, of basic skills training. 
uh, of of memorizing uh, uh, addition subtraction facts um, and a, a concern for them really gaining knowledge. Uh, Cheryl, Cheryl always said that the the progressivist way of doing things was to teach kids by withholding knowledge from them, <laughs> because. <laughs> It was like you were forcing something upon these innocent children, and you're not supposed to force anything on it, including knowledge, which is absurd, I think, and most parents think it's absurd, but this is seen as as wisdom in uh, education departments around this country. It's all over the place, and it is it is the dominant educational paradigm in every school, every every teacher, teacher's college. Every it, it, It's very rare to see anything else, and I think we need to be aware that that this is something we constantly have to push back against in our schools and, and, you know, even in curriculum you might get for your homeschool. And I mean, I think if ever the, if ever you stop seeing education as formation, then you've kind of lost, lost sight of it. And, and you know, the, the children, as Tanya said, right. The, the, it needs to be a teacher driven classroom um, you know, Martin talking about, you've got to be giving them specific skills. The children don't know what's best for them. Right. And so you, you as the adult or the teacher, right. This is, this is, you are forming them. You're not just letting them off to their own devices. Right. Cause then we end up with the Lord of the flies sort of situation. <laughs> so, you know, and, and Cheryl says in this article, right. It, it, it's, she says, it's only with gravitas that we can return awe to education. And I think that that's important to think about our education, right? If we are forming a child, then that child is is looking at this sort of process or skills or content, whatever you want to say, that's being given to him, that's being put on her, him or her, and should feel a sense of awe about it, right? Like, there's so much I don't know, and there's so much amazing things in this world that I get to learn about, but it's in that it's in that that really that decision to form the child, that 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 child's going to have this sense of awe, you know, and it even goes back to the architecture of schools. I remember when, when learning about how libraries used to always have a massive flight of stairs up into the building and we no longer have it, right? Because it meant to be, you were going up to something, you were working your way up and you had to, you, you were being elevated physically in the architecture of a library. Seriously? Yeah. That was a thing? It was a thing. They my, my I didn't know that. Had a, the library had a large flight of stairs that you couldn't use. You had to go around to a side door. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> so they had yeah. lost the toe of the symbolism. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wonder yeah. what that meant. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, in a classical context, there's, there's another danger because there's all this rhetoric out there about Socratic teaching. Mm. And what, you know, the, the teacher as a sort of facilitator rather mm. than an instructor. And... You know, if you if you if you look at what what uh, what you read in Plato, what Socrates was actually doing, this was being done with people who were already well educated. Okay, you could you could facilitate a discussion with people who are already educated because, but you can't do that with kindergarten, first grade, and second grade students. They don't have the ability to do Socratic instruction. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I have heard people say. Uh, people, I we're a K to twelve school doing Socratic instruction every every yes, year. Yes, good luck with that. I mean, it it, it it's not going to work very well. Um, <laughs> well, I think this has been a great discussion over this article. I would recommend anyone who hasn't read it to go on the Memorial Press website and just type in the word gravitas, hit enter, um, and this article will pop up, and it's worth reading. So, thank you guys for the discussion. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify. 
Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.